It's been an interesting week for me, uh, culminating in a memorial service yesterday where we filled up the sanctuary for that, and I have family in this weekend, and Paul's gone, and uh, so is a number of our other staff, and so uh, I'll just tell you right up front, I'm feeling a little bit um, unprepared, more so than usual, and I tell that to you not to have you feel sorry for me, but just to know, like, if I stumble a little bit, it's really okay with me, and it's really not about me anyway, it's about you encountering the Word of God, and so let's take a moment and just pray and trust the Lord for what he wants to say to us today. Father, this is something very, very deep on my heart. It's personal and it's real, but more importantly, it comes from the word of God through Ezekiel to us. So open our hearts and help us to connect with yours. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, do we have my, there we go. So I've titled my message today, The Heart of God. And we go right to the book of Ezekiel, and we talk about this man, Ezekiel. He was born into a priestly family. He was the son of a priest. But at about age 25, he was carried along with some other people from Jerusalem and settled in what we would call a refugee camp in Babylon. He was the second of three waves of exiles because the city of Jerusalem is getting ready to be destroyed by God. And there... Uh, we find that Ezekiel, at about age 30, so five years after he gets there, is called by God not to be a priest anymore, but to be a prophet. He thought he was going to go back to Jerusalem and be a priest and serve in the temple, but he's not going to be there, and instead, he is to have a prophetic message for the people who are living in Jerusalem. And so, what we know about Ezekiel is he loves visual things, or at least God tells him to convey his message more by what they will see than what they will hear. Ezekiel uses fewer words and more, uh, more word pictures and drama than any of the other prophets. For example, in one situation that Pastor Paul likes to call uh, building with Legos, he actually constructs a little model of Jerusalem, and around it puts little soldiers, and then there's like a pan between him and the, the, the city, which represents the wall of the city. And the whole idea of this, he lies there for 390 days on his side to represent that for over a year, there is going to be uh, uh, exile for the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then he turns over on his other side and he does it for 40 more days. And he doesn't talk during any of this. Like people are just watching him going like, this really looks weird. He just acts, right? And then there are other images as well. And in chapter 23, there's this really graphic chapter about how the people of Israel and Judah are compared to uh, prostitutes, and he compares them further to wild horses and mares that just have to have some kind of, you know, they're always looking for another lover, a really powerful lover, and you go like, that's really inappropriate for church, and I'm just going, just be glad we didn't read chapter 23 in church, because then you'd really think it was inappropriate. I'm telling you, this is an extremely graphic visual picture that Ezekiel paints of the people of Israel going after idols instead of serving the true and living God. So, I've titled this sermon series, This God is Our God. So we encounter a God who sometimes is uncomfortable to us. In fact, some of the ways that he speaks to and through Ezekiel are very uncomfortable to us. 
Our situation is not theirs. I keep saying America is not Israel, and whatever God is going to do in and around America is not the same as this unique event in, in redemptive history when God judged Jerusalem and God uh, took them into exile. But the God has not changed. So this God is our God. It's always our quest to see how does this God, how do we know him, how do we relate to him? So Ezekiel has given us a number of images already about who God is. We talked about the glory of God in chapter 1. And the bottom line of the the vision in chapters 1 and 10 is that God is a God who knows everything, who sees everything, who is everywhere uh, at once, and who is in complete control. That's the glory of God. And we see this in these kind of weird sort of creatures and whirling wheels going in opposite directions with eyes all around. And then last week we talked about the justice of God, that God is saying, look, it's time for judgment on my people, and it's the right thing. And Pastor Paul and I both reminded you that when you know what God knows, you trust what God does. That's the biblical emphasis on the justice of God. So now we come to chapter 24. And in chapter 24, there's yet another sort of acted parable, street theater. Ezekiel doesn't say anything, at least at first. He just is told by God, put a cooking pot over a fire. And in that cooking pot, I want you to put the best meats, like this is going to be the the best stew you ever had. But in truth, the stew is poisoned. And Ezekiel is told that the image that's here is that God is going to have to boil away the poison before you can actually eat the food. So it's another graphic image. And then we come to the part of the passage that Pastor Lori read. And this is kind of one of the most disturbing passages in the book of Ezekiel, maybe in all of the Bible. So I don't know if you heard it well enough to allow it to grip you as she read this text, but this is the same Ezekiel, and he is saying, once again, the word of the Lord. This is the theme of the book of Ezekiel. This is God's word. It's not mine, and the word of the Lord comes to me, and he says, son of man, so he addresses him again as a regular human being, just like everyone else, and he says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, and what's the message going to be? The message is going to be that his wife is going to die. Now, I was thinking, uh, the way he addresses Ezekiel about his wife is he says, the delight of your eyes. And I'm going like, i got to put a picture of a really hot babe up on the screen. So if I'm doing all visuals to represent, so what hot babe am I going to put up on the screen? So this takes me right back to my own wedding and, and to the woman who was and is the delight of my eyes, right? So you need to imagine this. Now, we don't know all the details that we'd like to know about Ezekiel. I'll tell you what we do know. He's 34 years old. He's like a calendar guy, and he tells you how old he is when everything happens in the book, all right? So we know he's 34. We know that typically... Uh, in that time, a man would have married someone much younger. So you probably remember that when Joseph and Mary got married, we think Mary was probably a teenager, and Joseph might have been in his 20s or 30s. Because they're in exile, all the rules may have been upside down or whatever. There are fewer people there. Maybe he got married when he was there. Maybe he got married before he left. But I'm sort of guessing no kids. No kids are ever mentioned. We don't know that for sure, but no kids. And I'm guessing if he's in his 30s, she's probably in her 20s or maybe even a teenager. So 
but however old she is, she adores him. He is so in love with her. He, she's probably his only emotional support and spiritual support system that he has in exile, all right? So this message that he's preaching, it's extremely unpopular, but he has one person who cares about him, who listens to him, with whom he debriefs every night, and she is the delight of his eyes. And God says, look, with one blow, I am going to take her away. Now, is that a direct act of God, like a miraculous intervention, like he's going to, you know, smack her, or he's going to, you know, give her all of a sudden a heart attack or whatever? Is that some kind of natural cause? We're not told that, and honestly, it doesn't really matter to the story. Because it's not the point of the story, and there's nowhere in the record of Ezekiel where he struggles with, like, did God directly do this, or was my wife going to die anyway, and God just told me about it? So either way, the point is, dramatically, suddenly, the one person he loves the most, who supports him the most, God says, I'm going to take her away. And the text doesn't take us to the grief so much as to the ways in which he is to express and not express that grief. And so what God says to him is, look, I want you to groan quietly. It's okay. I'm not telling you not to grieve. But you are to only grieve privately and quietly. And in terms of public, there are to be none of the usual acts of public mourning. So from other scriptures and other places in history, we know that typically what men did is they took off their hat, they took off their sandals, they put on what we would call basically a burlap bag, if any of you know what a burlap bag is, got to be a little bit older maybe, but sort of rough, coarse fabric, and then they sat in a pile of ashes and poured ashes on their head, and honestly, as they wailed out loud, people would know how much you loved the person who died by how deep and how public was your grief. So now Ezekiel is told, I don't want you to grieve that way. You've just lost your wife, your support system, and normally this would be a mourning period that would go on for days. I don't even want you to eat the bread of mourning. Now don't think sort of people were bringing chicken casseroles, like don't bring food that people come. The bread of mourning was actually a simpler, plainer food, so you ate very, just for sustenance during this time, but whatever the bread of mourning is, it's like Ezekiel, I don't even want you to do that. Now again, Ezekiel doesn't explain this to people. He just goes on the next day doing what he usually does. I don't know exactly what Ezekiel did every day, but he's doing prophetic things, right? He's preaching and teaching, but he's not doing any of the things that would be connected normally to mourning. And the people come and they go like, why are you doing this? You're so weird. Didn't you love her? Did you have something to do with her death? Did she run around on you and so you killed her? Like, he's not allowed to explain anything, do anything, much less show any public acts of grieving. And the people are going like, they're curious, which is exactly the point. Like, why are you acting like this, Ezekiel? Why are you not mourning? And God says, I want you to tell them that I am about to desecrate my sanctuary. Now, this is, for what it matters, part of why I think uh, when Ezekiel's wife died, it wasn't like God you know, personally struck her down. It was more natural causes. Because in the same way, God isn't going into Jerusalem and invading. He's sending the Babylonians. So the instrument by which God does this in either case is not the point. The point is that God is behind it. And God is saying, I'm about to desecrate my sanctuary. 
And what he means by that is I'm going to allow this to happen, this pagan nation, the Babylonians, to come and absolutely destroy the place. It will be burned. It will be razed. The people will all have to leave. And I'm behind it. It is a judgment from me. And Ezekiel's message actually makes the parallel. This sanctuary is the delight of your eyes. They were so proud of this place. You can imagine we're proud of having a beautiful building where we worship. But, you know, uh, it's nothing like to us what this place was to them. And this was all encapsulated with the promises of God. And God is saying, like, I'm going I'm to allow it to be completely uh, destroyed. And so this is why this is such a pivotal, unique moment in human history. There's never been a place that was so tied together with the promise of God than this place. And God says, I'm going to step back and allow the Babylonians to completely desecrate it, even though it is the delight of your eyes, God says. And then he says, you will not mourn or weep, meaning the people of Israel will not mourn or weep. I put the image of 9-11 up there because this is why they're not allowed to mourn or weep. It's not that God is saying you can't be sad over it, but when a disaster, say, on the level of 9-11 happens, you're not sitting outside the building sobbing. You are running as far away from there as you can get. You're sort of saving life. What can we do? It's, it's, a, it's a search and rescue operation it's uh, like, what can we salvage? And in that moment, in the middle of gigantic crises, you don't have time to mourn and weep. And what God is saying is, not only is this going to be destroyed, but you are not going to have the opportunity to grieve when it happens. So again, this is another dramatic picture that Ezekiel is giving to them of, about what God is going to do. And this actually concludes then the first 24 chapters of the book, the first half of the book, which is about destruction. He's going to get to... Uh, the destruction of other nations, judgment on them, and finally restoration and hope. All that's coming. But this is the end of the part of Ezekiel. And the point is, look, when this happens, it's going to be so dramatic that no one will ever forget this day, and no one at that moment is even going to realize we've got to stop and cry over this. Too much is going on at that moment. So Ezekiel, your wife's death and your lack of mourning over her is simply a reminder of what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And then God says, when this happens, you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. The text goes on to another paragraph or so and says, then a fugitive is going to come tell you the news. So somebody's going to come out of Jerusalem. We've already learned in other passages that there will be others who do survive, but they're 700 miles away. They don't have the internet, and eventually a fugitive is going to come, and that fugitive is going to tell you the news of what happens, and when it happens and you hear the whole story, as we said last week, when you know what God knows, you will trust what God does, then you will know that I am the Lord. So we come back to the question then, what does this have to do with God? What does it teach us about God? And what is the heart of God that is displayed in this chapter, in this story? And you may be tempted to go first back to that place where Ezekiel's wife died and to say, oh, that's a mean God. How cruel can he be? Like, just to make a point, he's going to take away the guy's beautiful wife? Like, what kind of God is that? Is that the heart of God that is displayed in this passage? And I want to say there's something so much deeper and so much more powerful, and I put it on the screen, but I'm guessing that even with it being read to you, 
And seeing it on the screen, you might have missed the basic point that Ezekiel, not only this passage, but this whole book is designed to teach us. And that is that it is God's heart that you will know that he is God. And so it's repeated in the passage two different times. You want to know the point of all this? It's that you would know that I am God, that the Lord is God. There is a progress of revelation in the Bible. It's going somewhere. And when you read the Bible, as you read through the different parts of the Bible, if you don't understand the progress that's happening, sometimes you live too much in a part of the Bible for some of the wrong reasons and get the wrong lessons out of those parts of the Bible. So this is one of those places where I say, when I'm telling you what is the heart of God, the heart of God ultimately is that you would know God. But there's a progress in that. And I went this week and I looked up all the places in the Bible where the word know or knowledge or knowing occurs in the same verse with God or Lord. So what does the Bible actually teach us in its progress about the knowledge of God or the knowledge of the Lord? And the progress then helps us to understand this story in its context. So the Bible begins in the book of Genesis with two names for God. And actually, when I looked up those scripture verses, none of them were in the book of Genesis. There's nowhere in the book of Genesis where it talks about the knowledge of God or knowing that he is God or knowing the Lord is God or knowing God. It's nowhere in the book of Genesis. So there are two primary lessons about God embedded in the book of Genesis, and both of them have to do with his names. God is revealed as Elohim, which is the word that means like God is uh, majestic and powerful and creative. So this is about the power of God. God is powerful. He's so powerful that he could speak words and an entire universe comes into beings in the various stages that God creates it, right? So we learn that God is Elohim, but we also learn that God is personal. And we learn the Lord God was walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. And so I put a picture of my grandson and me in a garden, right? It's like there's, there's a, there is a, even though it's not about knowing God, my grandson isn't really knowing me. But he knows that his mom and dad and his aunts and his grandparents, like they are personal and they are powerful. Like they can do anything in the eyes of a two-year-old, right, or an 18-month-old. And they are interested in me. So these are the first two lessons of what it means to know God in the Bible, right? It's that God is personal and he is powerful. But then when we get to the rest of the Old Testament, the most consistent phrase is that they will know that I am the Lord. And there are two places in the Bible in the Old Testament where this theme predominates, where these words, these verses that I looked up, where they dominate. And one is in the stories around the Exodus. So whether it's the plagues or the crossing of the Red Sea or the provision of manna or the way God comes through for them and brings them out of Egypt, the, the phrase is repeated over and over again. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And that's the dominant message of the book of Exodus. And then we get to the prophets, primarily Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, that are right around the time of the destruction of that nation that was coming out of Egypt. So you, you get the point? Like the, the knowledge of God, that he is God, comes through when they're when the nation is being birthed coming out of Egypt, and then it comes when God is saying, but I'm going to judge this nation, and they will know that I am the Lord. So the whole story of Israel from front to back, the rise and fall of Israel is so that they will know that I am the Lord. Okay, now where does the New Testament take this? 
there's a rather interesting and dramatic change of language that's not absolute, but very consistent and pervasive when you get to the New Testament. And it, the language is no longer that we would know that he is the Lord. It's that we would know the Lord. And so Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. To know God is different than knowing that he is God. You get the difference? So there's relationship involved here. There's intimacy involved here. And when we get to the New Testament, we find the writer of Hebrews, for example, saying, they will all know me from the least to the greatest. They will know me. And he's quoting from Jeremiah, who had prophesied this would happen. And what Jeremiah says is, look, there's coming a time when you're not going to have to teach one another about me. You're all going to be able to know me. There will be a personal connection between everyone who comes to me. And he says, their sins and wickedness I will remember no more. What's going to happen here is that God is going to actually create a way through Jesus Christ for the key barrier, the only barrier that separates us from God to be smashed so that our sins can be forgiven. And then when the barrier is smashed, smashed, we can know God. We can be intimate with God. We can have a relationship with God. That language is not Old Testament language, except prophetically, it's New Testament language. This is what it means for us to have the knowledge of God, to be intimate with him. And Paul says, when he writes to not only this church, but several churches, I keep asking the glorious Father, that you may know him better. This is his key prayer, that you would grow in your intimacy and your relationship with God. Paul writes for his own goal in life, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So there are three steps then in terms of the knowledge of God. First of all, just like with parents, and I kind of relate this to, to three stages of parenting. The first step in the knowledge of God, is just to know that he's personal and powerful. And uh, this, is what, this is the first lesson that a baby learns. Like, I'm, I'm okay because mom and dad have this, right? They're taking care of me, and they're so invested and connected with me. The second step, when your children become a little bit older, it's like, I don't necessarily, uh, I, I need to take them a step further, right? So when Greg Hardy is out there climbing a mountain with his kids, they need to know who's in charge, they need to know that he is dad, right? And because he is dad, it means that it's okay to climb up this rock, right? It's not dangerous. I'm dad. I've got this. I'm not going to take you to a place that's going to threaten your life. I'm dad. I'm your protector. But also I'm your guide, and I'm in charge here. And if you go wandering off somewhere else or get too close to the edge, you will know that I am dad, right? You will know that in that moment, and that's stage two of knowing about God. And then stage three is when your children become grown. And these are my two daughters who are also visiting with me this weekend. They don't always look like that, but we were getting ready to climb a really tough volcano. And I can tell you that with kids my age, I no longer want them to think that I'm in control of their lives. It's not about me being in charge. And I told them last night that the older I get and the older they get, I just want them to know me. And they've moved away. All three of my kids have moved away. And I don't, I don't need to run their lives. But as I continue to grow and learn and become a different person, I just want them to know my heart. But you know what? Knowing my heart is also a matter of knowing theirs. And I realize that to whatever extent, we don't create those opportunities in our family for Linda and me to really 
you know, be with our kids and continue to know them and have them know us. I'm the one who set that pattern, maybe even when they were young, that it was more like about me being in charge and control than it really was knowing their hearts. And as a dad, if there's one grief that I have over not just this phase of life, but the other phases of life, is that I didn't expose my heart enough to my kids, and I didn't give them safe spaces to expose their own hearts to me. But this is stage three when you're getting to know God. And don't you think this is exactly what God thinks? Yeah, first I want you to know that I am there. And so step one, uh, when you're getting to know God, is just it, do you know somebody or do you really struggle with the fact that God is personal and powerful, that he's real? Well, there's a great apologetics conference coming up in Charlotte, and it's really taking you to this place to say whether it's you or someone else who really struggles with how real God is and that he's there, the evidence for God, that's step one. It's an important step one for you to help equip yourself also to talk to other people. But it's not enough to just know that God is personal and powerful, right? You need to know that he is God. In step two, I would recommend several books that are all are in our church library or are going to be early this week that have been powerfully impactful for Linda and me. This one was uh, published in 1961 by A.W. Tozer, and he talks about idolatry and how it's just not just you know, physical idols, but it's entertaining any thought that is less than who God is. Knowing God was published in 1973, and uh, J.I. Packer uh, was so influential in my generation, and his book, Knowing God, really covers the attributes of God. And then there's the God you can know, somewhat lesser known because this gentleman died in his 30s, uh, but this was one of his most powerful legacies here, this, this wonderful book that's probably the most accessible of these three books if you just want to get to know God better. But for the most part, these books primarily focus on the attributes of God. And the attributes of God, that he is powerful and that he knows all and that nothing surprises God and that he's loving, that's critical to understanding God. But I still want something a little bit more than just knowing his attributes. And the books will hint at something that I think this next book takes us even further into. And by the way, all three of those books, even though their authors are deceased, are all in print and available. They're great books. But uh, several years ago, we had Kurt Thompson come here, and he helped, us, helped me really think about deeper ways that we need to consider knowing God as we know ourselves. And Kurt Thompson said, we delude ourselves into thinking that we know God, but, it, but, it, but God as we believe him to be, in control and invulnerable, not, as God, not God as Scripture describes him to be, a risk-taking and able to be hurt badly. What does it mean that God has emotions and feelings and that we get to know him because he has created us in his image? So Kurt Thompson will talk about vulnerability. How do you, get to, how do you go deeper in the knowledge of God? Well, we tend to place a great deal of emphasis on the ways and the degree to which we know God rather than the degree to which we are being known by God. It's this mutuality. And when I realize that there is no sense in really trying to hide anything from God, and I certainly can't, I can't deepen my relationship with my wife or my daughters or my son or my grandson or any of you any more than I can't know you any better than I am willing to be vulnerable and let you know me, right? So it, when we try to hide things from God, which is a ridiculous idea anyway, like I'm not going to tell God about that part of my life. He doesn't, he doesn't really need to know that. Like, no, the more vulnerable we are with God and the more we expose ourselves to the fact that we are fully known by God, the more we actually get to know God. And then Kurt also talks about attention. How well am I paying attention to what I'm paying attention to? 
So what's really capturing my heart in the world around me? Because God is using whatever's happening in your life right now to teach you about him. And thirdly, he talks about patience. Because sometimes there are moments where we feel just totally abandoned and forgotten by God. And in any given moment, God may seem very distant from us. But God is a loving and kind and gracious and pursuing God. And it is even true that in those moments when we feel very distant from God, that he is exposing to us his heart and his longing to be known by us. So the heart of God is that you would know that he is personal and powerful, that he made everything. The heart of God is that you would know about him, that you would know all of his attributes. But ultimately, the heart of God is to let you know that he has destroyed the barrier. You don't have to worry about the sin barrier that has kept you from him. Jesus took care of that. And that's why we urge you regularly and, and, and passionately to make sure that you've got the ground of your salvation and your hope and your life right now in Jesus who died and rose again. He's the only way that you really have the, the, then the capacity to just come before God completely naked before him and know that you are known and loved. We all struggle with what, what's God up to in our lives. Like, why did God let this good thing happen in my life? Why did God let this bad thing happen in my life? Why did God allow this grief into my life? Why did God allow this joy into my life? Is it possible that in every single circumstance of our lives, what God is saying is in the middle of this, don't spend your time worrying about whether I'm personally responsible for it or not. That's not the point. But I'm going to tell you, in the middle of this, in other words, don't get to those places that are so far above your pay grade. You can't figure out God's mind. Don't even try. But is it possible that no matter what happens, no matter whoever comes into your life for whatever reason, no matter whether it's a boring, mundane life or lots of exciting things, is it really possible? Isn't it? that God is saying in the middle of this, I just want you to know me better. I just want you to know that I know you better. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so humbled to come again before your word. And forgive us when we make assumptions and judgments about what you're up to in anything in the Bible or in our own lives. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who takes a passage like this, difficult and challenging though it is, and just reminds us it's always about the heart of God pursuing us. And so we take this step by faith today. We embrace it. And we tell you that we love you and we want to hear from you. And in the things that will happen this day and this week, we want to sense your presence, but we know there will be times when we don't. And so by faith, we simply say again, God, thank you for all you've done in Scripture and in my own personal life and world to draw me close to you and let me know you and experience the wonder of knowing the God who loves me better than anyone else possibly could precisely because you know me better than anyone else ever will. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The writings of Ezekiel constantly take us to confession, and there is a confession that is printed in your bulletin and also on the screen today. And I would just invite you to take a few moments as we uh, reflect on the Word of God today 
and let us confess in unison our sins, and then we'll take a moment in silent confession as well. Let us pray together. Holy and heavenly Father, I hear the words rebellion, defiance, and idolatry. I confess they describe my heart, my words, and my actions the way you see them. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in you. You are my only hope. By your life, death, and resurrection, I am known, loved, and forgiven. Holy Spirit, pierce my soul with my own unworthiness and open my eyes to my sins. Give me freedom that comes only when I admit my guilt before you.